It is episode 94 of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Jonathan Scope, we hardly knew you. Covering all aspects of Milwaukee Brewers baseball, it's time for Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Here is your host, Matt Pauley. It is time for another edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. My name is Matt Pauley. Thank you so much for being tuned in. We got a lot to get into, a lot to get into this week. And if nothing else, maybe we can uh, take your mind off of uh, the Packers for just a bit as we record this on uh, Sunday night. It's been an interesting evening with the Packers uh, letting head coach Mike McCarthy go. But we're going to be talking about uh, Brewers baseball as we always do right here on the podcast before we get into uh, the brewers do want to remind you if you do want to connect with me best way to do so is via twitter you can find me at matt paulie on air m-a-t-t-p-a-u-l-e-y on air it was a big past week for the brewers really across major league baseball this past week is one of the biggest uh, over the course of the offseason because teams make the decision on who they're going to tender contracts and potentially go to arbitration with and uh, who they will non-tender basically cutting ties with and we'll get into all the names and where they stand with the team. But as we open up the program, I want to start by talking about Jonathan Scope. He is traded for last year, Jonathan VR, a couple prospects, including uh, Luis Ortiz going to Baltimore for Jonathan Scope, with the idea that he would come in and continue to put up the numbers, show the ability to hit home runs, drive in runs, extra base hits uh, that he had done previously. And quite honestly, it didn't happen. You can think back to... His huge hit that he had in the game against San Francisco. He had another hitter there that were pretty big. But we're talking about a guy that had two, three notable hits after he is acquired by the Brewers. It He had very little impact on the team from a positive standpoint. And pretty good chance with him getting a, a new spring training wherever he's going to be playing this upcoming season that he's probably going to get back to being the guy that he was prior to being with Milwaukee. Now, we can argument, we can we, we can argue, we can look at the advanced metrics and say whether or not that guy is actually a good player or not, but he he did not play to that level once he got to Milwaukee. And David Stearns essentially said this isn't a gamble that's worth it. The risk is too much because he probably would have gotten about $10 million in arbitration. Uh, Brewers will probably have somewhere between 100 and $110 million in salary. So are you going to go give 8 to 10% of your entire 25-man salary to, to one guy who may or may not get things turned around? And I think clearly David Stern said, no, they're not going to do that. It was a much easier decision when you look at all the second basemen that are out there on the market. Maybe if Jonathan Scope completely rounds back into form and is 100% back to being the guy that he was before he got to Milwaukee, maybe you're not able to go sign a guy that's going to give you those exact numbers. But maybe you go get a guy who gives you 80% of that, 70% of that, but you pay him $4 million or $5 million. So we're talking half the money that you would have given to Jonathan Scope, and you take that other $5 million and utilize it elsewhere. It's, it's a net win at the end of the day. If there were very few second basemen on the market, I think it's a, it's a different story. Maybe. I, I'm, it's a different story in how comfortable you can be 
making the decision. It might not be a different story in terms of the actual decision that was made. The other part of this is Keston here is on the way. I think Keston here is going to make his major league debut at some point this upcoming season. Now, I don't think he's going to be the starting second baseman on opening day, so you still have to have you still have to have a plan there. And I don't think that plan is saying, well, an Aaron Perez or a Tyler Saladino can handle it until uh, until Keston here gets there, because if if, if he, there's no guarantee that Hira is going to be with the team this upcoming season. I think he's going to be in Milwaukee at some point, but it's not a guaranteed sort of deal. So you still need to have a legit uh, player there at second base when the season gets started, and I'm sure that they're going to make that happen. I thought it was really refreshing. I really appreciated it uh, on so many different levels that when David Stearns this past week was asked about uh, the scope trade, he said it was a bad trade. said it was a trade that did not work out. You know what that tells you more than anything else? Stearns is very confident in his abilities. He's very comfortable where he's at. He's not somebody that's going to try to sugarcoat a deal that wasn't very good because we can't tell you it was a good deal. They got very little out of scope. It was not a good deal. It's it's clear as day that it was not a good deal. So for him to just go out and say it, it was somewhat refreshing to hear that because I don't think a lot of executives are real excited about saying it wasn't a good deal. Stearns has such a high batting average in terms of the deals that he has made and how many of them has been. You're not going to hit 1,000 when it comes to the different moves you make as a general manager. And he's hitting well above 500. He's hitting probably closer to 800, 900. I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to think of moves that have backfired on him the way the Johnson scope trade has has backfired. Probably the worst move uh, in the David Stearns era of Brewers baseball. So I really appreciate it. It's refreshing, and I really appreciate the fact that he was so willing to open up about that and just say it wasn't a very good move. Uh, we'll talk more about Jonathan Scope with our featured guest this week, Jim Goulart from BrewerFan.net. He's going to be joining us coming up in just a few moments, but right now let's get to this week's Headlines of the Week. It doesn't matter if it's right in the middle of the summer or winter. There's always news about the Brewers. Let's look back at the week that was with Matt's Headlines of the Week. Alright, so we alluded to it, the fact that Jonathan Scope is not going to be back with the Brewers as they make the decision to non-tender him. He made $8.5 million this past year. He, in all likelihood, was going to get a raise to uh, above $10 million, and the Brewers just didn't think that was money well spent in terms of the gamble that went along with being assured that Scope would uh, get back going. The other two players that they decide to non-tender uh, left-handed relief pitcher Dan Jennings, also re- left-handed relief pitcher Xavier Cedeno. And uh, Stearns pretty much said that sometimes with these relief pitchers, they'll go to arbitration, and just the way the arbitration system is set up, they would actually make more money in arbitration than they would on the open market. And I think that's probably the case with those guys. Sometimes arbitration kind of values what you do. A great example of this is... Uh, Chris Carter from a year, a few years ago. Remember the Brewers non-tendered him after he led the National League in home runs, and he couldn't find a job the next year. If he would have gone to arbitration, uh, if I remember correctly, it's been a number of years. I have to go look it up. I feel like he was on pace to make ten plus million dollars a year, and he couldn't find a job the next year. 
That happens sometimes with arbitration. I think it happens with relief pitchers more than probably any other position. Uh, they do agree to deals with a with a few players, and this isn't just tendering a contract where you still have the chance of going to arbitration. These are actual deals uh, that were signed. It started earlier in the week, catcher Eric Kratz. He is going to be uh, back with the team, and they also sign uh, Hernan Perez and uh, Tyler Saladino to one-year deals as they avoid arbitration. And then the players who have been tendered contracts, they can still come to an agreement with uh, on a deal with the Brewers. If they don't come to an agreement, they would go to arbitration coming up in uh, here not too long. A lot, I think those arbitration hearings generally happen January, February, maybe into March a little bit. I'm trying to remember. I think, I think January and February. But I feel like sometimes they go into uh, spring training as well. So maybe it is uh more march i have to look that up i don't know it off the top of my head right now i'm just trying to think back and yeah i guess february march is more uh the time timeline for that but well, that being said zach davies junior Guerra, Corey knable jimmy nelson manny pina domingo santana travis shaw those players were all tendered contracts so if they can't come to an agreement on a new deal with the club they would then go to arbitration also one other note and this is really cool the Brewers this past week being named the Organization of the Year by Baseball America. Uh, the award recognizes the Brewers' success at the major league level, also the organization's uh, amateur, professional, and international scouting, their farm system, and their player development efforts. The uh, ex- uh, executive editor of Baseball America, J.J. Cooper, said, quote, We honored the Brewers as our Organization of the Year, not just because they had a very successful big league season. We try to ensure that our flagship award digs deeper than that. The Brewers' run to the National League Championship Series was built by successful player development, scouting, and analytics department. We've been impressed with Milwaukee's ability to develop and graduate prospects to the major leagues, as well as the Brewers' ability to use their farm system to improve the major league club, most notably last year with the Christian Yellich trade. So very cool. That's a, that is a huge honor for the uh, organization to receive, and I think it is very, very, very well-deserved. Fourth time in organizational history that they've won it. They won it three years in a row in 85, 86, and 87. Have not won it since. Those are this week's Headlines of the Week. After every Brewers game, signing an announcement, bloggers and podcasters hit the web to give their take. Now we bring them all together. It's the Social Media Roundtable, and it starts now. Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast is powered by WTMJ Mobile. It is time for our uh, social media conversation. Haven't done this the last few weeks as we've been focusing in on our uh, Down on the Farm as we did the full recap with Brad Ford over the last few days. But uh, very happy to be able to uh, welcome onto the program a guy that we like to have on fairly often. Uh, He is the original link reporter over at uh, BrewerFan.net. You can find him on Twitter at Mass underscore Haas. He is uh, Jim Goulart. Jim, it's always great to talk to you, uh, especially in the offseason where we got a chance to talk about a whole lot of things. How are you doing? Hey, Matt. It's a, yep, it's a busy time, um, and I think the, uh, the focus among Wisconsin fans uh, might be even a little stronger towards the, the Brewers these days um, based on the weekend's events. So 
uh, we'll see uh, a lot to focus on for sure. Yeah, we are recording at 8.20 on Sunday night, so we're less than two hours removed here in Wisconsin from uh, Mike McCarthy being fired as the Packers coach, and we're less than five hours removed from essentially the Packers' playoff hopes officially going away when they lost to the Cardinals. So it's a good week to be talking about the Brewers. Not that there's ever a bad week to be talking about them, but it's even that much better here uh, locally in Wisconsin because of what's going on with the Packers, I think. Well, I think you know the, the radio business very well, of course, and um, to be honest, there will be a lot of uh, Packers angst, I'm sure, over the next uh, several weeks, maybe even more so than things were just kind of ho-hum, so to speak. Um, it, it's when things are going really well and when things are going uh, really awkwardly that um, the conversation tends to sneak in, but from a Brewer's perspective, as far as clamoring for um, a continuation of the positive, absolutely, it's, uh, fans are going to be looking to, to talk the crew as well. We have not gotten the opportunity to speak since the season came to an end, so I want to get into a lot of stuff with you, and we're going to we're not going to go in any sort of timeline order. We're just going to jump around kind of from uh, from subject to subject. So we'll start with uh, the news of this past week, and that was when the non-tenders came out. A couple pitchers in Cedeno and Jennings on that list. I think some people were a little surprised by it, but not shocking. But the big name on there was Jonathan Scope, and they went out and they made a trade for, uh, for Scope, expected a lot more than what they gave him or what he gave the team, I should say. And to David Stern's credit, I found it so incredibly refreshing that after the non-tender, he basically said that was a bad trade and that's on me. I, I appreciate the, the candor and the honesty there. Uh, where do you stand on the decision to non-tender Jonathan Scope? Well, I, I'm more comfortable with it than I think um, Scope's agent might have been initially with the comments from Stearns. Um, while Stearns definitely takes the hit, it, it certainly didn't shine a, a bright light on Scope, but his numbers were were out there for everybody to see as far as his, maybe his, his temperament um, in terms of, of scope, um, you know, it really shines a light on, uh, I, don't, I don't know what to say, he's obviously accomplished quite a bit, but he's, uh, he's the maturity level, there was something there that just wasn't um, worth pursuing going forward, and I have no problem with it whatsoever. Um, the money is going to be spent elsewhere, it's not as if they're just tucking it into their back pocket. And it was a decision that uh, I think a lot of people saw coming as, as time was moving on. And uh, I know that Scope will put together somewhere better numbers than he would have um, reflected last season. There's no doubt. He's not going to stumble. And, and I hope Brewers fans aren't going to be second-guessing in the fact that if he does fare well somewhere, um, Oh my goodness! You know, look what look what they did. This is not going to be a, a triple guess as far as uh, second guessing themselves. Um, I think they're comfortable with the decision, disappointed, and in, in they had to make the decision, but um, not something that's going to cause us to really hand wring our, our our hands over the next uh, six months, wondering, you know, why did this have to ha- have to happen? Do you? Appreciate kind of the the refreshing honesty of a David Stearns when he said, "Yeah, that was a bad deal." Yeah, I think that um, you know it's not something you want to hear him say too often, and certainly his track record reflects that that's not something that he's going to have to say very often. Um, and the whole thing that it was on me. Um, 
take a look sometime at the Brewers. They list it right there on their, their website within the roster section, the front office um, listings. So David Stearns really took one for the entire organization. While he definitely pulls the final trigger, um, there were people in his ear within the organization that um, identified scope, uh, suggested scope, argued for him. So what really Stearns impressed me more than just saying it's on me is that he's saying, you know, there were people who, within the organization who definitely supported this move beyond just myself. I, I doubt he was going rogue um, and, and going against the wishes of others in the organization. So for him to step up and, and you know, he's the face, he's the guy. And just to make that comment, sure, I think it, it was refreshing. So now we can go back and look at the trade for a moment. Jonathan VR, Luis Ortiz, Gene Carmona, the guys that go to Baltimore. Now that Jonathan's scope is not in the organization anymore, what part of that trade or maybe what player in that trade hurts the most? I am of the opinion, going back over all the trades and pickups that they made last year, that there wasn't really much in the way of value that was given up across the board. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not bemoaning the fact of, of, of any of those three particular pieces. Um, Jonathan Villar seems like, I saw this somewhere this week, where he just seems like the perfect player who's always going to perform well on a poor team. <laughs> that, um, when expectations are, ri- are raised, um, you know, so I expect Villar to be very, very proficient out in Baltimore, um, you know, 40-plus steals, and and he's going to be somebody who's going to be okay in that environment. Um, Luis Ortiz was just um, an enigma. Maybe it's the whole uh, tether to the waist to, to Matt Garza that still leaves a, uh, something in the, um, in the back of my head. And then the young man... Um, uh, Carmona. Oh, one more time with Gene Carmona. Yeah, yeah, Carmona. Um, I think we've seen over and over again that the um, significant bonus money doesn't always necessarily mean um, a significant um, talent rise through the system. So um, I'm not concerned. And if we were to go through the other, you know, KJ Harrison's and Demi Ormaloy's and others that they gave up last last summer, I was so comfortable with all those moves. Um, I think this is a farm system that um, even before those trades was already reflecting um, some weakness in, in many areas. So um, not bemoaning the various trades at all at this point. I had somebody who's pretty connected to the organization, and I hate doing this where I don't attribute a name, and then it's kind of a he said, she said, he said that he said sort of thing. So I, I, don't, I try not to do this all that often, but I, I believe what this individual told me. Uh, I, I had this person tell me that uh, the Brewers had kind of lost faith in Luis Ortiz and were looking for him to maybe be part of one of these deals if they could make him part before his stock started to drop you know, across the rest of baseball teams as well, that they didn't really think he was ever going to be a difference maker at the major league level. And I thought that was interesting because you mentioned him being an enigma. Uh, the, the Brewers are very loyal to their prospects, I feel like. I think sometimes if there's if there's ever a fault with the Brewers, I think on occasion maybe they overvalue their prospects. I think you can say that about 
almost any organization because when you put so much uh, so much into somebody, you're gonna you're gonna value them more than maybe another organization values them. But from what I heard, there was maybe a little bit of uh, they were getting a little chilly on Ortiz. Well, it's always true that um, every organization, nobody knows their their prospects better than the organization themselves. And when you're willing to give somebody up, um, you know, it, it tugs at the heartstrings, but it also tugs at your knowledge base. And, um, you know, you had Chris Hook, who's now the pitching coach on the big league level, um, you know, as part of that whole minor league operation, including time that he had spent um, in Huntsville, I believe, in Ortiz's uh, first year, perhaps, with the crew. That's that after his pickup, but regardless, um, that again is a, is an organization wide, um, recognition. And I, I'm not surprised that you mentioned that maybe somebody whispered in your ear that, um, Hey, this was the time to, uh, to cash in a potential, potential ticket there. You mentioned Chris Hook, so I want to jump into some of the coaching staff changes that have happened here over the past month or so. And Jim, I got to be honest with you. I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I am really intrigued by what's going to happen uh, with the team's pitching and and how we evaluate the job that Chris Hook is going to do because I think Derek Johnson was a really, really good pitching coach. I also think Derek Johnson was helped out by a pitching philosophy that he was able to help execute in a in a in a very strong way. I've I get the sense sometimes that people think that I'm putting Derek Johnson down when I make comments about using the pitching philosophy to to their advantage. And in no way, shape, or form am I ever putting Derek Johnson down. I think he's a he's a heck of a pitching coach and I'm, you know, for him personally, I'm happy that he's probably gotten some some life changing money to be able to go to uh, Cincinnati and do what he's gonna do there. But I am I am really interested in what it's going to look like if we're going to be able to see much of a difference between a Derek Johnson and a Chris Hook. So before we even get into the Chris Hook stuff, let's start with Derek Johnson. What was your, what were your thoughts uh, when you found out that he was going to be leaving the organization? Um, terrified. <laughs> so I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on this, okay? And, and let me explain. Um, I think the last time the Brewers had a pitching coach, and I couldn't believe it when I, when I checked this out. I looked it up. And Mike Maddox's last year as pitching coach was 2008, so 10 years already, which seems amazing to me that that, that much time has flown by, where um, right after a, a postseason year, um, the Brewers kind of had poached a, um, a very highly thought of um, pitching coach. Okay, so I just, you don't remember, I mean, there was the, the one Rick Peterson year, I think 2010, and the Rick Kranitz um, kind of fell into the lap of um, Ron Renicki's fantastic 2011. And, but you never heard Kranitz mentioned in the same regard as, oh my goodness, look what he's doing with, with so-and-so. Look what he's doing with this staff. Look what he's doing um, from a um, con- non-conventional pursuit. And, and maybe that's just because we're in a different age now, and, and Johnson happened to be the guy who was in place when the Brewers started instituting some of these policies. That being said, I was really hoping that this was going to be, and, and I hate to put an analysis there to next to uh, the Cardinals, but that 
Derek Johnson was going to be Craig Council's uh, Dave Duncan, you know, where it was just going to be one of these um, decade-long relationships and the Brewers um, benefit from the association. I think that um, Cincinnati absolutely um, seized an opportunity. I can only imagine what the level of salary is that Johnson was able to apply from them because the Reds have been linked now to some really big-name pitchers. They're determined to make a difference um, after a, a big loss in attendance space, etc. I, I Just to summarize, Matt, um, I'm not... I like the Chris Hook promotion. Um, I've linked in the past to many Chris Hook interviews that have been available from his minor league um, airwave days from some of the affiliates. Um, but that being said, I just think the Johnson loss is one of the big unknowns heading into spring training, and we just can't assume that it's a it's a system that works. I think Johnson was, was really key. Well, I want to get back to that in a second, but I want to sidebar for a moment. I think David Stearns is an incredibly disciplined general manager, and I think we see that in trades. He's not going to overpay. He doesn't overpay in free agency. He doesn't overpay in trades. He doesn't overpay. He knows what the value that somebody brings is, and he basically stays to it. I mean, that doesn't mean he doesn't wiggle a little bit to uh, to push something through at the end, but he's got a basic valuation on everybody, and he's not going to stretch off that very much. Could that could that potentially be something that as as much as I say that in a positive way because being disciplined is a is a very good quality and a very good trait. Are there times maybe with a Derek Johnson situation where you have to come off of that valuation a little bit, kind of for the greater good? I think there probably is. Um, keep in mind though that maybe. Even if they matched the Reds' offer, um, I think the, there was this whole thing where um, Cincinnati was a little closer to um, to Johnson's Nashville home. In other words, really, how far beyond were they going to have to go to truly satisfy um, Johnson, who just happened to have this kind of opt-out, if you will, um, this little window? And I'm sure that Johnson's uh, agent representatives, you know, let. MLB organizations know, hey, my guy's technically a free agent for this brief little window. So even if Stearns had pretty much matched the Reds' offer, it's not a guarantee that Johnson was coming back. So I think that the um, it was just a matter of opportunity for Cincinnati. They took advantage of it. I, I think Stearns is honest when he says, look, we, we didn't want this necessarily to happen, but um, it is part of what the game is today in terms of contracts and relationships. I, I do think it's interesting to, to hear that, you know, Lee Tunnel, bullpen coach, was terminated, as we know, at the end of the, you know, at the end of the season. And yet Johnson, apparently that wasn't he wasn't on board necessarily with that because he spoke glowingly of Tunnel um just recently and now they're reunited in Cincinnati. So um, makes you wonder a little bit even more what goes behind that situation. But either way, what it comes down to is I think Johnson was a critical loss, I, and I'm just really hoping that Chris Hook um, takes the ball and runs with it. So that's a – and 
I think it's a, uh, the, what I was saying earlier. I am I'm really interested in what's going to happen moving forward because I do think part of what Derek Johnson was able to do was implement a organizational philosophy. That's not taking away from his ability as a pitching coach, which is obviously he's he's a he's a superb pitching coach, and I think also. Uh, the thing I most appreciated about Derek Johnson was kind of his ability to find pitchers to be them their best self. You know, whether it's adding a pitch, or removing a pitch, whatever it might be, he just seemed to have that knack of helping guys be able to do what they needed to do to be their best self. That's kind of for me. That's the big question mark on Chris Hook. I think he's going to be able to uh, go out there and preach and teach the organizational philosophy, but it's that individual touch that Derek Johnson had on guys that quite honestly we don't know what it's going to look like with Chris Hook at the major league level no matter what he did as a pitching coach and as a coordinator at the working with minor leaguers we don't know what that's going to look like at the big league level yeah it's fascinating to know that we don't know necessarily the players don't come out necessarily and say uh, hey Jeremy Jeffress oh well it was it was Derek Johnson specifically who got me throwing the splitter, even though he ended up abandoning it more at the end of the year. Or Wade Miley, you know, I think did throw some some light towards Johnson uh, about his cutter. And and but in this day and age of um, having these, um, I don't know how they do it, but they they just keep track of all these pitches and what percentage of of each pitch they you know each pitcher is throwing and to what level of effectiveness. And it seemed like that's where Johnson shined more than anything else. And um, you, you would love to hear some of those pregame conversations, and one of the reason I, reasons I think that they're so, you know, okay with with veteran catchers at this point is those pregame conversations and analyses. I, I think the catchers have a big hand in that, unless they're looking over to the dugout on a pitch by pitch basis, um, you know, as they do in college and such these days. So, um, yeah, I. It's going to be one of the most fascinating storylines, and I think we're going to know fairly quickly um, in terms of this coming season. Um, if, you, if fans haven't had a chance to peek at that um, late March, early April schedule yet, after opening against the Cardinals, you've got three series against the Cardinals by April 24th, one against the Cubs, and seven games against the Dodgers, all by April 24th. <laughs> so um, we're going to know fairly quickly um, against some pretty tough um, lineups, uh, just how this, whatever the reconfigured pitching staff looks like, uh, is going to fare. The hitting coach position, Andy Haynes comes in. I, I appreciate guys like Andy Haynes who have worked from the from the bottom up, being an independent ball and summer collegiate baseball and things like that. And now he, uh, you know, he, he he was a minor league manager, minor league hitting coach, uh, got to a big league staff, was an assistant hitting coach, so on and so forth. Uh, I, I I also. I think the the pitching coach situation might have a a larger impact on the team than the hitting coach situation. And again, it's something that it's hard for me to talk about. I I can't speak for you. I don't know how it's going to look different, but it might look a little bit different. So I guess I ask you just kind of general thoughts on the fact that they are going to have a different hitting coach this upcoming season. Yeah. Um... Sports Illustrated ran a, it was a fairly lengthy article, but it was definitely worth a worth a read. Um, I, I I definitely found myself um, involved in it because they took a very specific look 
at um, the status of hitting coaches throughout the league. And I think, David, if I'm not mistaken, David Stearns was quoted within as saying he was surprised at just the, the level of, like, you know, three-quarters of the teams or more um, have swapped pitching coaches, excuse me, hitting coaches within the last two years. Um, I think it's pretty much acknowledged that the hitting coach is um, – yeah, he's a compadre, he's a uh, sounding board, but I don't think that you can take those 13 um, position players and really account for a, an overall uh, crest or, or, or earth-shattering development within just by a hitting coach. Um, you don't see hitting coaches necessarily getting pilfered from other organizations to the extent that pitching coaches might, so... Um, yeah, it's it's. I still put all that more so on the the batters themselves. Um, it's such an individualized game when it comes to uh, swinging the bat. That, um, but I'm I'm with you. I have no problem with the hire, and it's nice to see somebody who's uh, kind of nondescript in terms of his own pro career um, rise to the level that that Haynes has. Uh, going back, we were talking about Johnson Scope, obviously, at the beginning of the conversation. The implications mm-hmm. of Johnson Scope being non-tendered is an opening on the infield. Now, we assume it to be second base. There is always a scenario where they sign a third baseman and they keep Travis Shaw at second. I don't think that's overwhelmingly likely, but you never know what's going to become available and who they may get engaged with. Uh, but the... There's a lot of options out there at second base. I think that's we didn't even talk about this on the Jonathan Scope deal. I think I think that's another part of this is you are going to pay him ten million dollars in arbitration. Well, you can go get a guy who maybe gives you. 80% or 90% of what Jonathan Scope gives you, you know, in terms of Scope's best, not what we saw from him in Milwaukee, and maybe you pay half that. Maybe you're paying four, five, six million dollars. There's a lot of guys who are out there. There's a lot of dominoes that are going to uh, fall before all is said and done. But how do you evaluate and what are your expectations of what the team might do uh, at that second base position or even at the third base position if they decide to go uh, that route? Yeah, I agree. I think that um, that Shaw ends up back over at third base, and that definitely took um, part of the consideration in terms of Scope's decision because there are so many um, options out there in terms of second base. Now, let's keep in mind, um, you know, Keston Hira is coming. He's a second baseman. He's nothing more than a second baseman, so that's where he's going to be. That was part of the allure of the Scope trade and that scope would be here for 2019. Um, so you've got Mauricio Dubon, who won't be, most likely, you know, won't be on the opening day roster, but if he has in April anything like he did um, last year and shows that he, he's healthy after the, the knee surgery, um, he's going to be a tremendous option who also has gives you the flexibility to play other positions. Um, Matt, I finally come to terms that Hernan Perez will will always be a member of this team. So I think we've had that decision in the past as well. So we need a bridge. Um, ideally, um, whoever they sign to play second base, and I think they will sign um, somebody to be the opening day second baseman, um, will be amenable to a one-year contract. And um, I think from the right-handed side, you've got you know DJ LeMay, who's among the guys out there. I would love to see um, a Daniel Murphy, to be honest with you, and... and I don't know if 
you might have to go to a second year with him, and it's probably going to be a little more expensive um, than they'd like. But just another left-handed bat that gives you such a strong top six. I think that's just such a... You have to go six deep. There were too many times last year where the lineup was only five deep um, because of um, you know nagging injuries or other things along the way. You know you're going to have um, the catcher spot in Arcia at the bottom of the lineup along with the pitching spot. So you have to have a strong six. And somehow there's a lineup where you've got um, you know a Ryan Braun hitting potentially sixth instead of um, third, fourth, or fifth. Um, I just think that would make a tremendous difference. And, and the way second base is now with the shifts, as particularly as much as the Brewers emphasize it, you don't need Robbie Alomar out there no. with, with his range playing second base on a nightly basis. We saw it with Travis Shaw. I know Murphy's metrics at, at defensively um, have not been strong. He's going to be uh, 34. Um, and this is the age 34 season next year. But what a professional hitter and just, Somebody from the left side who could go. Let's you know if you could go, Kane Yelich, who it doesn't matter whether he's facing a lefty or righty. Um, you know Aguiar's there, Braun, uh, Shaw. Now you add Murphy to that mix. Um, that's a pretty strong six. And Thames, uh, if he's still on the team, um, you know, seeing some more left field time, I think would help him out um, when he's in there or first base. So, again, I just don't think there'd be a night where you'd have to worry about going less than six deep. And I, I think that's so critical. Not a, This is just me talking. There's not a whole lot of uh, – there's no smoke on this one. But if if the market goes as slow this year just for, for a Mike Moustakis as it went last year and he became amenable to a, a one-year deal with maybe a buyout like he had this past season that he had signed with, uh, with Kansas City. How open would you be to the idea of him coming back to be at third and Travis Shaw going back to second for, for a full season? I think that I, I'm kind of okay with saying goodbye to Moustakis um, on a formal basis. Um, the on-base percentage just doesn't work for me. Um, I don't know in a full in a full season. Um, you know, he brought so much in terms of um, you know that postseason experience and and that second half of experience coming down the stretch last year. But the need to have him on the opening day roster, um, I just. Yeah, he'd, he'd hit 25 to 30 bombs, and, and some of them would be pretty majestic. But I just think you could fill it with more of, of a professional hitter than, than what Moustakis brings. I'd be interested in, and it's kind of one of those, can you hop in the DeLorean and, and redo it? But I'd, I would be very – I'd love to just be able to see what his numbers would look like playing a full season at Miller Park. Okay, you know, I've got you there. And, um, again, Shaw would – I just don't know if he would be exposed over over a six-and-a-half, you know, seven-month stretch at second base. And um, we really don't know what went behind the scenes with the Shaw discussions of, of transitioning there to begin with. Um, then once in a while, you know, Shaw was uh, – I guess the metrics and other – the manager fan um, – 
not fan voting, but manager analysis, put him um, in the top three for the gold glove consideration, right? Yeah. So um, at third base. So I just think Travis Shaw is a third baseman entering his first year of arbitration, and um, that that's a, a nice place for him for him to slot. And I just don't think I think Moose would be yet yeah, he'd eat twenty five to thirty bombs, ninety RBI looks good um, on raw terms. But I think there's more things there. The the, the shift. I mean, the, one of the things about Christian Yelich's year that's amazing to me when you talk about left handed batters is who are the left handed batters who can overcome this these tremendous uh, shifts that are going on right now. And and Travis's Shaw Travis Shaw's um. Uh, Batting average with balls in play was low this year, and they'll say, oh, yeah, it was bad luck. We're looking for Shaw to have a huge year. But how much of that was just simply, no matter how hard you hit it, the shift is going to to do it to these left-handed hitters. And um, Yelich is one of those guys who's able to overcome that, and and they're getting fewer and far between, I think, Um, which, again, leads me kind of back to Murphy a little bit as far as my my personal option. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think and I'm kind of going against one of the things that I don't like to do. I hate talking in terms of things that are not really based in reality. I like, you know, when I'm going to argue something, I want it to be realistic. And quite honestly, if if they were really thinking about having Travis Shaw play second base for a full season, I think we'd hear some rumblings of him maybe going and playing some winter ball somewhere to work a little bit more at second base. But you're more connected to that stuff than I am, but I haven't heard a whisper of that. So the fact that there's no whisper on that would would fully indicate to me that he's headed back over to third. Yeah, I really hope that Travis is uh, is enjoying life with his uh Still healthy daughter now, and just a, a full off season. Um, just kind of not salivating because he's earned it. Believe me, he's earned it. But you know, his salary um, should exponentially increase, maybe tenfold. Um, you know, with this arbitration season, and um, let's just hope that um, it'd be nice if it was just a nice, friendly agreement. Didn't go to the actual arbitration hearing, and that uh, he's super comfortable. Because I think personally, as much as I just mentioned that batting average and balls and play and such, that um, he'd be my pick to click to just have a, a monster um, 2019 where that average is back up in the, the 280 range and associated with that is just additional production um, that comes with the comfort of knowing that uh, you know he's, he's in that really meaty section of, of his career. Last thing for you in this conversation, we certainly will talk again over the course of uh, of the off season. But you and I were talking a little bit off the air before we uh, you know press the record button and start inter- uh, recording this interview. And I did a, a guest spot on WTMJ the other day, and I was asked about biggest needs going into the season. And I didn't mention starting pitching off the bat. I mentioned second base. I actually mentioned relief pitching. I mentioned just creating a little bit more depth on that 25-man roster, maybe getting a little bit more power off the bench, Same things like that. And I didn't mention starting pitching. And if my take is, sure, if, they, if, if, if all of a sudden they're just showered with money, and they can expand the payroll to 130, 140 million dollars, and they can go get a big time, you know, big name starting pitcher. I'm not going to be against that, and clearly it would help the team. But 
to just go get a pitcher to get a pitcher. It's kind of the same argument we had during the trade deadlines this past year. Don't just go get somebody to get somebody if he's not going to make the team better. And with the young nucleus of starting pitching that they've got available, a Corbin Burns who's going to move into the starting rotation, a Brandon Woodruff who, you know, I think he's probably going to be a starter. I guess there's always a chance that they use him as a right-handed version of Josh Hader out of the bullpen based off how good Woodruff was in the postseason. Uh, But a Freddie Peralta, he obviously showed what he can do. You look at those young guys, I'm more excited about those guys than them going and getting one of those second-tier or third-tier pitchers that are available out there. And I think you agree. Matt, you know – and. this has to be true that inside those Brewers um, front offices and across baseball, they are just um, within the offices themselves, the Brewers front office, they are just giddy about the fact that they have developed, in particular, the, the three kids that you mentioned in, in Burns, Woodruff, and Peralta. We just talked about you know ha- adding people to the 40-man roster and, and the non-tenders and whatnot. I mean, Burns got added like a year and a half before he even had to be. That was how quick his his rise was. And um, Woodruff just, you know, had folks really impressed all throughout the postseason, of course. And Freddie Peralta, I just, I'll continue to say it. And just, and sometimes you just see a guy where it clicks, where this is a young man from his, um, his self-motivation to, to really learn and, and almost dominate the English language at such a young age. Um, that was all him. And what he's shown on the mound, his little, there's a little spark there that tells me he's, he's really something special. So believe me, those three, they are the envy of so many general managers across baseball. You don't need to, you don't need to hit on 12 young pitchers for development purposes. You need to hit on maybe four or five at any one time. And the fact that these three are all capable of, of plugging into a rotation at a time where you don't need seven inning starters, but if you get five and six con- you know, continuously um, effective um, performances, and these guys are all capable of that, and they're all entering their, their first full seasons. None of them even have a full season under their belt yet. Now, where do they squeeze in among... You know, Jimmy Nelson, Zach Davies, um, Anderson. It's it's going to be interesting, but you're absolutely right. There's not. I don't see a Jay Happ on the horizon. I don't see. Um, you know, I, I see others that could potentially be be signed. I, I, in ter- including my um, Wade Miley, Gio Gonzalez. I think there's even a chance, like a Drew Pomerant, so somebody like that could be. You know, kind of a reclamation. Um, signing, but I don't see one of these other folks um, being signed. I think they're going to spend money on a second baseman, and beyond that, it would, and that, even then, that would be a, a stopgap one year, maybe two year plug in. Beyond that, I am just so thrilled, and, and it's part of my reason for the you know, being wary of the Derek Johnson departure because let's hope these kids can just continue to thrive, but. I think it's overlooked, not only among Brewer fans, but in baseball circles, to some extent, the emphasis that should be placed on Burns, Woodruff, Peralta. That is a real, real feather in the Brewer's cap, 
And if, if any of the, there's not a lot behind that in terms of upper level pitching. You've got Zach Brown coming off his minor league um, pitcher of the year season. That could be a young man that I see move in a trade if a trade is made. But I still think the Brewers will focus on the lower end of the free agent market more than anything else over the next couple of weeks. And those are the guys that we'll be talking about, the lower end free agents. That's what's going to fill up the Brewers offseason. For people who want to uh, talk Brewers throughout the course of uh, 12 months a year, 365 days a year, every moment a conversation is going on, BrewerFan.net is a great place to get to. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what's going on uh, over at uh, BrewerFan these days. Yeah, um, BrewerFan, always you're going to find um, topic discussion threads in a moderated format that um, keep the hot stove churning. Um, you can bet that somebody among all our participants, um, not necessarily staff, but all the, the fans that chime in over there, as soon as something hits the Twitterverse or otherwise, um, we're talking about it over at, uh, over at Brewer Fan. On a personal note, um, I'm trying to keep up, and I think I should. It's a little easier in the off season. I am linking to every bit of audio and video that I can find um, in terms of I've always been a big fan that I think – um, we can learn so much more behind the little hidden nuggets we find within um, recorded conversations as opposed to just always the, um, the quick, you know, written articles and such. So if there's somebody out there talking brewers, um, particularly actual uh, players or farmhands, I'm linking to that in an off-season archived media thread. And then the other thing is just um, I have fun finding little nuggets um, throughout the off-season. It's just easier to do some searches and stuff than, than when the regular season's in play. And if I do find those, whether it's winter ball, um, Australian summer league ball, where the brewers have some, some young farmhands down there, um, if you like getting into the little minutiae of, of that kind of thing, then follow me on Twitter or uh, keep an eye on what's going on at Brewer Fan. Jim, uh, great stuff. Uh, folks can follow you on Twitter as well, at Mass underscore Haas, M-A-S-S underscore H-A-A-S. Uh, Jim, it's always great to talk to you. I look forward to uh, our next conversation, which will come up again before the offseason comes to an end. Matt, enjoy the holidays, and um, hope all is well with you um, behind the scenes. And, uh, yes, looking forward to uh, continuing to listen to you, your various guests throughout the, the winter, and um, I think it's going to be fun. Jim Goulart joining us here on Brewers X-Trains, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile, and we certainly appreciate uh, his time with us as we talk all things Brewers baseball. That's just about going to wrap up this edition of the podcast. Shameless plug on Thursday nights on WTMJ Radio. I do the Brewers weekly show. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, a little hit or miss in terms of me hosting it this time of the year as uh, Greg Matzik hosted a lot for me. I am the uh, play-by-play voice of Green Bay women's basketball, and they play a lot of Thursday night games. So I am not in on those Thursday nights when uh, Green Bay is in action. But they're not in action here uh, this upcoming Thursday, so I look forward to talking to you coming up uh, this upcoming Thursday evening. That is going to be uh, December 8th. I will be on from, uh, let's see, Thursday the 8th. That'll be 8 o'clock to uh, 9 o'clock. I'll get through that one. Uh, four seconds. So if you don't listen to it live on WTMJ, as always, we will podcast it uh, right here where you can uh, check it out at a later time. Once again, do want to say thank you to uh, Jim Goulart for uh, joining us, and we do look forward to talking to you next week for another edition of Brewers X Trains, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. Thanks for listening to Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. 
Matt will be back next week with another episode. For all the latest Brewers news, keep listening to the home of the Brewers. News Radio 620 WTMJ.